Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at cars and transport from a variety of angles. I'm David Brown and in this program we'll hear about how you can make money by reporting potholes, how the world's first flying car racing league was born, Ford's self-braking shopping cart, are computer car parks worth it and what are the alternatives. We're here again from rally driver Molly Taylor and what she went through in travelling to England to prove her credentials as a driver. There are two motoring minutes from Rob Fraser about Isuzu products. We hear Alan Zervis's report on a historical event for Citroen. And we get our resident artists, Dean Oliver and Brian Smith, to talk about the changing outward appearance of cars in the light of the Shanghai Motor Show. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going. Let's have the news. In the recent federal budget, the coalition government announced a commuter car park fund of $500 million. Four authors from the University of Melbourne recently wrote an article for The Conversation questioning the value of building commuter car parks. They raised a number of interesting points. Assuming an optimistic 1.5 people per car, building new car parks might only serve 4% of the current number of people travelling to work by public transport. They believe that there are cheaper ways to get these people to work. They cite Vancouver's Beeline bus service, which moves 56,000 passengers a day at a cost of less than $14 million a year. The authors feel that there are better ways to utilise land around suburban train stations, like direct and frequent bus services. If building parking stations at suburban railway stations is expensive, what are the alternatives? Via is a new ride-hailing service that has been set up in Seattle. The company has developed a micro-transit service comprising the Toyota Sienna vans to connect residents with public transport. Each van can carry up to seven passengers to transit-link right rail stations, making it easier for commuters who do not own a car or prefer not to drive to connect with trains or light rail. Drivers may soon be able to earn cryptocurrency and make payments on the move using innovative connected car services currently being tested by Jaguar Land Rover. Using smart wallet technology, owners earn credits by enabling their cars to automatically report useful road conditions such as traffic congestion or potholes to navigation providers or local authorities. Drivers could then redeem these for rewards such as coffee or conveniently use them to automatically pay tolls or parking fees. Smart Wallet uses the latest cryptocurrency technology and Jaguar Land Rover has partnered with the IOTA or IOTA Foundation. The advanced connected technology is being trialled at the new Jaguar Land Rover software engineering base in Shannon in Ireland, where engineers have already equipped several vehicles including the Jaguar F-Pace with Smart Wallet functionality. From the Jetsons to Blade Runner via the Fifth Element, flying cars are a mainstay of science fiction. And for Australian entrepreneur Matt Pearson, owning one was a boyhood dream. Pearson is the founder of Alouda Racing, 
and creator of Airspeeder. Airspeeder is an entirely new sports league for elite pilots flying manned electric multicopters head-to-head in some of the world's most exotic locations. Manned drones will compete streaking around a track at speeds of up to 200 kilometres per hour. The company has already presented showcases featuring three-quarter scale prototypes and will unveil its first full-scale prototype at the Goodwood Festival of Speed in July. Time will tell if it will take off. Ford has announced that it may be moving its motoring technology from the highway to the supermarket. The company has just rolled out a self-driving shopping cart. It utilises similar technology found in its vehicles that helps drivers avoid accidents on the road. The shopping trolley uses a sensor to scan ahead for people and objects, automatically applying the brakes when a potential collision is detected. The pre-collision assist technology uses a forward-facing camera and radar to detect vehicles, pedestrians and cyclists on the road, automatically applying the brakes if the driver does not respond to warnings. However, the trolley is just a prototype. The self-braking shopping cart is part of a series of Ford interventions where they're trying to solve day-to-day problems. As the cart is only a concept for now, it won't be appearing in stores anytime soon. But it's interesting to see other ways in-car technology could be used to solve problems away from the streets. Australian Supercars has confirmed the 2019 Ford Mustang will undergo aerodynamic changes to ensure parity with other cars. The parity debate has dominated discussions across the opening rounds of the 2019 season. The Mustang has claimed 9 of the 10 race victories so far and taken 8 of 10 poles in 2019. Supercars conducted a centre of gravity test last month across all three tested and approved models, the Mustang, the Holden ZB Commodore and the Nissan Altima. Ahead of the Tasmanian round, ballast tweaks were applied to both the Mustang and the Commodore. However, data gathered following the Phillip Islet round has confirmed the Mustang has an aero advantage. As a result, the Mustang is set to undergo changes to both the rear wing and under tray. The discussion will likely roll on, considering supercars approved the Mustang's aero package during testing conducted late last year. And that has been the news. Rob Fraser now has a motoring minute. X-Runner was first introduced back in 2011 to great success, and the 2017 model sold out very quickly. The latest Model X runner is priced at around $55,000 drive away and comes in two finishes, a pearl white and a magnetic red. There's exclusive X runner branding across the bonnet, doors, rear quarter and tailgate, and the iconic red and black styling continues inside with X runner scuff plates, badges and trims. The styling also has been incorporated with red stitching across the dashboard doors, glove box and console lid, and there's a genuine leather wrapping for the steering wheel. The seats are also trimmed with contrasting red perforated leather, flanked with a dark grey on the seat bolsters and headrests for durability. The X-Runner is a cosmetic upgrade based on the LST and has the same reliable and robust running gear. Definitely worth a look before stock runs out. You're listening to Overdrive. Being a works driver in racing or rallying appears to have a lot of glamour. It is recognised that there is some effort and stress, 
but that's usually seen as being the physical and emotional strain of driving in a big event. But the hard grind to get to the position of actually racing is not always understood, perhaps rarely understood, yet it is in this aspect that makes it all the more interesting and involves a wide range of skills. Molly Taylor is now the works driver for the Australian Subaru Rally Team, but her journey to this position has taken her around the world in some less than glamorous situations. Molly joins us on the line now. Molly, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Now, your family is a bunch of very good achievers. I think your sister is now well in the legal profession. Did you have the opportunity to go to university? Uh, I did, actually. Um, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Sydney. I started that. I lasted uh, one semester, and then I was actually... I was rallying at the time and I thought I could could do both and um, I wanted to go over and compete in this uh, event in the UK, a sort of one make series against lots of other juniors. But to do that, I obviously needed some money and I had four jobs at the time and I so I deferred uni for a semester so I could uh, fit in all those jobs and I thought I would work, save up the money, go and do this one event and see what happens and then, then you know, go back to uni after that if I needed to and um I went over and did that that race and I, I came back to Australia um, over Christmas and then basically packed up my bags and moved to the UK uh, beginning of the following year and um, yeah, I've, so I've completed uh, two subjects <laughs> of my degree. Were you one of those students like a lot of my mates who would sit through lectures and draw pictures of cars? <laughs> well, actually doing my sort of high school certificate when I was finishing school, I actually decided to, for my design and technology project, I built a racetrack and then I had the, the local council involved and yeah it was great so I managed to at least apply sort of my love of motorsport into school and um, I think honestly what motorsport taught me at school and, and you know whilst I didn't finish university but I did better than I expected at school but because I was so busy it actually made me a lot more productive with the time that I did spend. How old were you then when you went to the UK and what was the event? Uh, so I was 20. It was the final round of the, the British Rally Championship season. So they had a, it was called the Suzuki Swift Sport Cup, which was a one-make series for very similar to road cars, not modified. You know, I had the safety equipment, but that was about it. It was sort of an up-and-coming category for, for young people to get involved at a relatively low cost. And everything was the same, so it really then came down to um, the drivers. Had you driven that type of car, that Suzuki, much before? Never, never, and it was left-hand drive, and I met my co-driver the night before the rally, so in hindsight, a bit crazy, but I'm so glad I did it, and it's what, we um, got a puncture earlier on in the rally, so the overall result wasn't great, but we set some top three stage times and, and did enough to, to prove that we had potential, and, and it was from there that I met all the contacts and was able to, to put something together to go back and, and compete in the full season the following year. How did you find the volunteers? I think, like, maybe a few people just saw this, crazy Aussie over on the other side of the world <laughs> no idea what she was doing and maybe felt a bit sorry for me <laughs> um, it's an incredible sport so I was really lucky with the Monster Sport Europe team that were running the cars that the, the team within that who were running a bunch of cars kind of tagged me along with what they were doing that was at the beginning where the majority came and then some rally friends in Australia had some some rally friends in Ireland for the following year and they had a spare car and you know out of the generosity and they saw that I was on the other side of the world with their family and they basically welcomed me into their family and, and they all helped, you know, following year. So it was just, you know, things that I guess you pick up from, from being over there and on the ground and in the thick of it and people seeing what you're doing and, and wanting to get involved and, and creating 
I guess, environment around you from, from being there, which was, was the best thing about being over there and on the ground and being ready for when those opportunities came. Did you get homesick? I did, yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, it's, you know, been away from all those networks. And I guess at that time, like I remember on my, my 21st first birthday, I was actually moving into the barn. <laughs> so I basically spent the, the, the day in the workshop and then the evening of my 21st was moving, uh, doing loads in this little Peugeot 106 that I bought for a few hundred pounds moving all my stuff into the barn. So it was a bit of a, it was a very humbling 21st birthday when you see, you know, like friends at home going out and, and that sort of thing. But the flip side of that is having the opportunities and doing what you love and, and being over there pursuing what you're passionate about. I mean, there's nothing that comes close to that. And you did well in the series? We started off well. We won the first two rounds. I crashed in the next two. <laughs> but coming into the final round, we um, there were three of us effectively that could win the series and it was whoever won that event would win the series overall so we came into that event we were doing really well we had a, a 40 or something second lead with two stages to go in the rally um, and the fuel pump failed so that was definitely one of the toughest moments definitely to date and probably in general that, that goes up there as one of the most disappointing um, things obviously your first year to win it and to be able to come out and to be on the brink of, of winning would have been amazing and also the, the prize was some money that would go into making the following year possible. So from two accounts, it was very devastating to uh, to have that happen. I once had a mate who tried to be a professional golfer, and he said, you see Tiger Woods putt for millions of dollars. You think that's pressure? He said, I was putting for a, in New Zealand in order to win enough money to buy my airfare home. Yeah. Now, that was pressure. Yeah, definitely. And at that point, you, you know, you're trying to prove yourself, and that so much rides on that fact. So that was yeah heartbreaking. But then I think what you well, what you see after that. I mean everybody's watching what's happening. So it's not even though you didn't win, people see what you do and the people that matter know know what's happening. Molly, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And that was Molly Taylor, Subaru Australia's driver for their rally team. You're listening to Overdrive. Here's Rob Fraser again. With a major update in 2017, the latest round of improvements are mainly a cosmetic refresh with new alloy wheels, revised grille and some new running boards. There's also some new safety features such as blind spot monitor, front park assist and rear cross traffic alert. However, these are unfortunately options but can be retrofitted back to the model year 17 onwards. We'll probably have to wait for the all new model for more safety features. The MUX steering has also been recalibrated for more direct feel and responsiveness and you can definitely feel that. The big story though is that all Isuzu's now come with a 6 year 150,000 kilometre warranty, 6 year roadside assist and a 7 year cap price service menu. Combine this with the legendary robustness of the Isuzu and you have excellent reasons to have a look at the latest models. You're listening to Overdrive. We did an interview with Paul Morel a few weeks ago about his reflections on a hundred years of the French car maker Citroen. It was some personal reminiscences. Now we catch up with Alan Zervis, who has been to a more formal presentation of the history of this quirky car maker. Citroen put it on because of its hundred year heritage, and Alan joins us on the line now. Alan, once again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, David. It sounds to me like you were almost at an art gallery or sculptures. 
where they put the cars in front of you and you could reminisce, ruminate over these wonderfully different looking cars. Is that what it felt like to you? That is exactly what it felt like. And indeed, I've owned uh, several of these cars myself, or they've been in the immediate family or circle of friends. And there were some old favourites. There was a CX-25 GTI, so the, a Mark One, a fabulous DS, which of course started Citroen's love affair with hydro-pneumatic suspension. Amazing uh, SM, which of course the French president rode in for a while. I had a four-door one of those, uh, a decapitable, which was chopped off at the top, a BX-19. They were just truly beautiful cars. And of course... The first car ever to circumnavigate Australia, I think it was 1913 or thereabouts, 5CV. Neville Westwood, a Seventh-day Adventist missionary, drove a 5CV, which was affectionately known as Bugsy, I believe, and left Perth. He started in Perth just some 94 years ago now where he circumnavigated Australia. It's interesting, isn't it? The SM... Now, that was, what, when was that? That was more the 80s and 90s, I think, was it? Oh, no, no. Uh, the XM was 90s. The SM, of course, was the, uh, it was on the same platform, if you like, if they had such a thing in those days, as the DS. So that came towards the end of the DS line when Citroen and Maserati were fairly closely aligned. So, of course, it had the uh, Maserati V6 in it, which proved not to be very reliable, but was unbelievably throaty and beautiful in its sound. It was perhaps the one attempt anyone has ever made to carry on the look of the DS. We all know the DS. It is that one that is just staggeringly different in its looks. And I think the SM tried to carry that on and perhaps was worthy of it, but, but you say that perhaps other things such as the Maserati engine didn't do it justice? Well, it came at a time, as I say, towards the end of the DSs where there had started to be an oil shortage. There they, they started to be a problem, and thirsty six-cylinder engines became, uh, you know, they dropped out of vogue, so it was just the wrong car at the wrong time. It was the 2CV that really made the name and image of Citroen. Why? It was such a funny-looking car, wasn't it? Well, I think it was... I think in, in many ways it was France's answer to Germany's Beetle. It was meant to carry a farmer across his field with his wife and a basket of um, eggs or something without breaking any of them, including the missus. <laughs> but they, they are quite unique to drive, and they feel very very different to driving a car a modern car of today you know they they were very very floaty the front of it is a very slopy front and it has a sort of goggle-eyed almost frog-like eyes at the front mm. and the back is very plain and flat i always thought that was the french were very keen to show off when they're approaching you but once they passed you they couldn't care well, I think that goes for many of their other cars as well. But, of course, that one was so uh, so basic that I think the early ones were even made of corrugated iron. It reminded me of a car that a guy put together by pulling apart a shed. Well, actually, I don't think he pulls apart. I think he just put it on wheels. <laughs> Is Citroen going to have celebrations? Are they going to wave the flag? 
Well, indeed, as part of the the event last night, of course, they were launching some new cars. So their sister company, Peugeot, was launching a new van, an LCV. They're going into the Hyundai iLoad type territory. Citroen as a brand are launching their Aircross, so their new small SUV. So they have a very small range. It'll be, uh, you know, only a few cars. And uh, they're trying to be, as they say, different. So that's their celebration. They, you know, they're trying to bring that in to kind of recapture some of the feeling of the past. Alan, how, how good it is to talk to you. Thank you once again for your time. Always welcome, David. Thank you. And that's Alan Service from gaycarboys.com.au who was talking about going to the launch, the gallery of Citroens that were on display by the company because they are reflecting their 100-year history. You're listening to Overdrive. The Shanghai Motor Show produced a number of clear messages, including the Chinese manufacturers are here in a wide variety of ways, electric cars are big news, and access and convenience is leading to some unusual vehicles. The look of possible cars for the future sums it all up. Who better to have a review of the good, the bad and the ugly than our resident artist, Dean Oliver. G'day, Dean. David, hello. And the observant, if not acerbic, Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Now, Dean, you've always had what you call the 50-metre rule. Would you like to explain that to us? Well, David, I'm a child of the 70s, I suppose, and so I'm used to cars of that era where at, say, 50, 60, 80 metres or so, you could clearly tell the difference between them, but you could easily tell the difference between a Ford and a a Chrysler and a a Mini and things like that. But as car design moved on through the through the 2000s or so, we got the jelly bean look and the aerodynamic look where cars tended to look a bit the same. And uh, say the length, half the length of a football field, it was pretty difficult to tell the difference between, say, a, you know, a Commodore and a Falcon and, and that kind of style. We mentioned uh, your rule, the 50-metre rule, for determining good uh, or at least different style. We put that on the Facebook page, Overdrive City, and a reader did say that they were then driving down the highway and applying it to see whether it was fitting. The rule was good and see whether he could judge a car accordingly, but he found a very, very early Austin 7. So he found that that passed (laughs) more than the 50-metre rule. I think it passed the 300. The 100-metre rule, yes, yes. Uh, maybe that's like playing I Spy with My Little Eye as you drive. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, the other issue we've talked about in shape is whether new technology may give us a greater freedom, not just physically, but almost permission to look different. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, that's one of the disappointments so far in uh, particularly electric vehicles is that um, yeah, they don't really need to have a conventional shape necessarily. They don't have a sort of a, a, a necessary a motor uh, sticking out the front of the car. And, and so, yeah, I think designers could be more adventurous and imaginative and try and reimagine how we might use a vehicle from scratch, you know, like reshape it. But I think what Dean's talking about with a 50-metre rule and the, and the sort of blurring of cars together, I think there's sort of a a car design vernacular that we're stuck in of particular height and a particular length and relationship between dimensions that, I guess, ties the hands, perhaps, of some designers. 
I completely agree. And I think one of the most exciting innovations, I think, is doing away with radiators. And uh, I think it's going to take designers a little while to come to grips with the fact that they've, they've now got much more freedom to, to design really quite different looking vehicles. There's another factor in play, which is, is safety. So a lot of the dimensions of a car, particularly at the front, are determined by pedestrian safety requirements. So, so you don't want a car that with a, a kind of a front that pushes somebody under the wheels or necessarily throws them in the air. So car bonnets now have to be fairly high to, so that pedestrian struck is, is sort of put onto the bonnet rather than, than thrown un, over or under the car. And so when you do with away with a radiator, you end up possibly with this very big, bland front of a car. So I, I think there's some design to be done to try to overcome some of those restrictions relating to safety. If you look at the cars that didn't have a radiator up the front, like a Volkswagen, it had a very, well, not chiselled, but drooping nose. It dropped down. Mm. And the Porsche 911 is an, another example of that. Some really great and distinctive design there. And I think it is going to take designers a little while to, to come to grips with the safety issue as well. I mean, we don't want cars that are going to uh, sort of slice pedestrians in half. And yet we don't want yep. cars that are going to look sort of bulbous and uninteresting at all. And yet witness what you've just said about the Porsche and, uh, and the VW Beetle. The current trend has been towards more creases and angles and lines in a car, yet the Mazda 3 has come out with a more curvilinear type of approach. You would have to say it looks less angular than some of the recent cars that we've seen on the market? Yes, it's interesting what Mazda designers have done. It's still recognisably part of the, of the previous Mazda 3 line, but there's a challenge in that large rear section. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. It'll probably grow on me, and in 12 months' time, I'll be thinking, yeah, that looks good. I don't think they've done a lot. I mean, the, if you cover up the, the sort of halfway mark with your hand, it's, there's nothing different at the front of the car from any other Mazda's. You're right about the back. It's, uh, it's sort of been lifted up more like a, a kind of a, a larger hatch kind of shape. But, you know, I don't think it's, it's more than incremental, the design change. Well, certainly there have been some others that perhaps take a bigger step. Well, gentlemen, some trends that are happening in the design of motor vehicles. I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. The future looks good. Well, certainly might finally look a little different which is go back to our very point. And that was Dean Oliver, our resident artist, and our traffic expert, Brian Smith, talking about the Shanghai Motor Show and other new cars on the market. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser, Dean Oliver, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their essential help in getting this program to air. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify and you can look at our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.